Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Claudia Delgado Corcoran, MD, MPH, about the article, Reducing Blood Testing in Pediatric Patients After Heart Surgery, a Quality Improvement Project, published in the October 2014 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Delgado Corcoran works as a cardiac intensivist in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah, and is the Associate Director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Primary Children's Hospital. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Delgado Corcoran. Thank you, Dr. Parker. Claudia, would you start out and give us a sort of summary of what your paper is about? Yes, thank you. So in 2011, we undertook a quality improvement project in our unit with the goal of decreasing the amount of blood testing that we do in pediatric patients after heart surgery. However, we wanted to do this maintaining the quality of care of our patients. The study focused mainly on the ordering processes that we did and redirecting practitioners toward the individual needs of the patients. Following this approach, we were able to decrease the number of blood testing by 37% and the hospital cost from laboratory studies by 32%. This was without deleterious effects on length of stay in the ICU, duration of intubation, extubation success, uh, catheter line associated blood stream infection or mortality to discharge. So why did you and your group undertake this project? Interesting question. So we talk our blood testing practices with our blood bank and colleagues and ended up that the CICU, despite that is one of the smallest units in the hospital, had the one of the largest amount of blood testing. So we wanted to investigate the issue and, you know, see if we could decrease the amount of blood testing, particularly because our population is, you know, especially patients less than one year where excessive blood testing could lead to anemia and also blood transfusions. So what was the goal of your study? So the goal of the study was to individualize our blood testing instead of standardizing, and we wanted to do our lab collection driven by clinical needs instead of, uh, of the individual patient instead of just routine blood testing. When we did our um, mapping of our process, we found that the CICU had order sets that basically have lab testing at arrival to the unit, lab testing for the rest of the hospitalization, and labs that could be even be drawn by nursing depending on how the patient was doing or how she felt comf- uncomfortable or, you know, or, you know, this un. PRN orders that were unlimited. So we saw a great amount of blood testing done, especially on blood gases, and a great amount of blood testing done on electrolytes. As you looked at the different labs and you looked at different interventions in your study, what were the most effective interventions that drove your improvements in blood drawing and cost saving? So one of the things that we did was, one of the first things we did, we created a new order set, and these uh, new order sets eliminated these daily routine labs that they, it was called hard labs, and they were done on a daily basis. 
as long as the patient was in the CICU, regardless of their progress. Then we also emphasize the use of non-invasive monitoring, entitled CO2, non-invasive, I mean, near spectroscopy with the nears, and basing minute ventilation with the blood gases and entitled CO2 and the relation with the CO2 and the blood gas. So with that, we decrease the amount of ABGs that were done. The other thing that we did was we avoid PRNs, verbal, schedule or serial labs. It wasn't infrequent that we would have Q4 hours or Q6 labs, hours, Q6, every six hours labs. And again, no inclusion of how the patient was doing or their progress. So we avoided routine PRN and verbal orders. The other thing that we created was that every day in rounds, we discuss the lab needs of the patient. So we said, okay, what labs do we need for tomorrow? And the other thing too was that we standardize or try to consolidate the labs that um, in that way we will decrease the line entries. How did you get everybody to buy into this change in process? It's not so easy to get physicians to change their practice. (laughs) You are totally correct. So what we did, obviously, we initially kind of have like a baseline information. So our baseline data was from 2010. And initially, we chose patients who were in the RACS category 2, meaning patients that were not terribly sick, but that still will need blood testing. And we collected that data, and we basically showed that to our heart center group, meaning cardiologists, CT surgeons. We also map our our process, including these as-needed labs and these uh, heart labs that were collected on a daily basis. And then we created a a group, a quality improvement team that was basically with representation of uh, from different levels, meaning we had techs, we have the clerk, we had the bedside nurses, we have the a fellow, a PQ fellow, cardiac uh, intensive care, I mean critical care fellow, a CT surgeon. So with that in place, I think that really was very helpful for the success of the project. What other factors were important in making this project so successful? So certainly, you know, we um, encouraged the nursing staff to do more critical thinking because, again, they they were used to that the labs were ordered, you know, every so often or every day. So we asked them to do more critical thinking based on triggers, perfusion, urine output, arrhythmias. And, and then the physicians also, we asked them to uh, avoid as much as possible uh, verbal orders or PRN orders or a scheduled lab. So we basically empower uh, the nursing staff as well as the physician to drive the lab testing based on the clinical uh, needs of the patient. The other thing was uh, we have done a lot of education about the consequences of blood testing such as blood loss, the need of uh, blood transfusion and how blood transfusions could have deleterious effects on these patients and also cost. So I think all those things together uh, help us to make this project a success. You mentioned at the beginning that you reduced the um, total labs by 37% and hospital costs by 32%. How about blood transfusion? Was there any effect there? 
Yes. So one thing that we investigated was our sickest patients, which include the RACS category 6. You know, those are babies who have basically a hypoplastic left heart that needs a Norwood sun or a Norwood BT shunt. So these patients are you know, our sickest population. So we track our transfusion practices, particularly in this group, and we were able to decrease the amount of blood transfusions on that group. Although I suppose it would be difficult to tell how much of the improvement or decrease in blood transfusions was because of decreasing blood draws and how much did you have changes in your transfusion practices in general, your transfusion threshold and so forth over this period of time? You are correct. And we're doing another study, but I will tell you that this particularly uh, group of patients, meaning the single ventricle physiology, our practice traditionally have been uh, keeping the hemoglobin above 13 with a hematocrit above 40. So despite, you know, new data to suggest that blood transfusions and, and the threshold for blood transfusions have changed. This group of patients, I think they still, we still have that, those thresholds of hemoglobins around 13 and hematocrits around 40 to maintain the levels above that. It's interesting that throughout medicine and critical care in particular, there's an emphasis on standardization of care. And what you have done is standardize the the approach to the individual. It's an interesting spin on how to improve quality of care. You are correct. And we, you know, we talk about that a lot when we were in the process of implementing this project, because again, you are correct that, you know, it's more and more about standardization. The problem that we face is that we have a very, um, our group of patients are very variable. I mean, meaning that we have different surgical lesions with different complexities. So it's very difficult to standardize because each individual patient will respond actually in a different way to to the surgery. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think we discussed that in detail and we thought that our best approach was to individualize the lab testing instead of standardizing them. But what you did standardize was the approach of the team in discussing the need for labs, in uh, addressing the PRNs, in empowering the nurses to think critically and so forth. Yes. Yes, exactly. That was emphasized and I think that is kind of our core of the of the of the project. And honestly, I think I owe that to the, our success because I feel like, you know, the nurses are really empowered to say, you know, Dr. Delgado, I don't think this patient is doing well. Check the, the check the perfusion. Maybe we should do this and that. I mean, they are really thinking uh-huh. instead of kind of being passive and say, okay, it's time to draw labs now or it's time to do you know, in the morning or every six hours or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it, I think uh, that was one of the things that I, I, I still think that that is one of our core changes was that we really are working as a team and that we empower our nurses, we are empowering our physicians and, and you know, we're trying to, to do what is best for the patient. What are the limitations of this study? So one of the things that we have struggled with the project is that we don't have electronic medical records, so we cannot do a prompt feedback to the staff about the number of tests that were ordered, you know, by patient's day or by length of stay. So a lot of the lab counting was in some ways done manually. Mm-hmm. 
the other thing is, even though our, I think, demographics and the distribution of patients may be similar to other institutions, our ordering process is different, our computer system is different, and that may be limit the applicability of our study somewhere else. Because we don't have electronic and medical record, we, it has been a difficult to track uh, adverse effects from lab omission. We have a way to flag them, but, but I don't think, you know, it's not, it, it hasn't been uh, very effective. So, for example, if you don't get routine measure of potassium, but you just do it when you think it's needed, and then you find out, oops, it's out of line, is that what you mean by potential? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, it's, you know, and again, we haven't, find, we haven't had any significant side effects from the project or harm, or, but definitely we need to improve. You know, we're working on, how, on ways of, of flagging situations where the lab was delayed because you know, and then something abnormal was found. Do, do you have any information on the sustainability of this project? Have you been able to continue these gains past 2011? Yes, ma'am. So we are in the process of investigating this further. 2012, definitely the, the lab was decreased and was sustained, and we're working on 2013 at this point. Do you think that what you did in this project has potential applications to other units? I mean, clearly you've used a cardiac intensive care unit population. Do you think that some of your principles or some of the lessons you learned could be applied to other kinds of units? I think so. I think so. I mean, again, particularly other CICUs, particularly other PICUs, where we do a lot of routine blood testing and, and schedule testing every so often, you know, like every six hours or 12 or, you know. Yeah, I think populations where there are often protocols written up front that include laboratory testing may lend themselves to reviewing and looking at how is that process run the way you did. I see. Do you have any final comments you want to make? You know, again, I think one of the biggest lessons that we learned from this project is that if you include, uh, if you have representation from all levels, your project is going to be successful. I mean, I will tell you, we have patients, we have people representation from the clerk to the techs to the city surgeon. So I think that is one of the biggest things that we did with this project that I think can be applicable to other quality improvement to make them successful. I think you're exactly right. I think that principle of including all of the potentially involved members of the team in some sort of process where you're trying to change the way things are done is critical to the success of a quality improvement effort. Yeah. Yeah. A, a simple example I can give you is that our techs used to draw labs without even thinking. I mean, they would have, you know, all the colors of tubes that they needed and automatically draw labs, where now they have actually need to check what orders were made and select the tubes that are needed. So you have managed to have a culture of thoughtfulness about what labs need to be done throughout all of your team, and I, I congratulate you on that effort. Thank you for speaking with us today, Claudia. Thank you very much. 
We have been speaking today with Claudia Delgado Corcoran, MD, MPH, about her article, Reducing Blood Testing in Pediatric Patients After Heart Surgery, a Quality Improvement Project, published in the October 2014 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress to be held January 17th to 21st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.